back at it, the 130th installment of the Far Middle Podcast, where the rational, the logical, the scientific, and the reasonable, they all reign supreme. In other words, something different than what's typically out there these days. I'm your constant host, Nick Deolius, and if you're a first-time listener, thanks for investing the time, and I hope you like what you hear. And if you are what we call a constant listener, thank you times two for all the support. And a happy belated Veterans Day to all those awesome vets that are out there. Hope you enjoyed the past weekend. Well-deserved, of course. And for our sports dedication this episode, it's going to most definitely connect to Veterans Day because it deals with a veteran of two wars. And our dedication is also going to connect to the premier airing date of November 15th. And I get to pay homage to one of my favorite, I mean my favorite all-time athletes. For many reasons on the playing field, as well as off the playing field. This guy was different, and he was, I believe, the greatest of what he did. Hard to believe that after 130 installments of the Far Middle, we haven't had a chance to honor him yet. So we're going to dedicate episode 130 to the Splendid Splinter. Who? Shame on you if you ask that question. That's the great Ted Williams, a.k.a. the greatest hitter to ever play the game of baseball, and also one of the greatest Americans that ever was, which I'll try to explain in the next few minutes. But first, let's talk about his baseball feats. The reason we honor him on episode 130 is that the airing date of November 15th marks the date back in 1946 when Ted Williams earned his first American League MVP award. And by the way, he did it again in 1949. I said he was the greatest hitter that ever was, in my opinion. And what's my basis for that? Well, he's won the Triple Crown twice. He was an American League batting champ six times. He led the American League in home runs four times. And he led the American League in RBIs four times. He was an all-star 19 times. All-time Red Sox team, all-time player with respect to being in the Hall of Fame. He's on the Major League Baseball All-Century team. And get this, he's on the Major League Baseball All-Time team. And by the way, he's also a manager after he retired as a player on the Major League level. And he made hitting a science. And actually, he wrote a book on it, literally, and its title is appropriately The Science of Hitting. He had legendary eyesight, claiming to be able to see the spin on the ball as it was delivered by the pitcher and thus knowing what type of pitch was coming. Now, his most famous season was probably 1941. That's the same season that Joe DiMaggio had his 56-game hitting streak. But that was the year that Ted Williams broke the 400 mark for batting average, the last player in Major League Baseball to do so. And just to illustrate what Williams was like as a person, what type of person he was. So before the final two games of that 1941 season, it was a doubleheader against the Philadelphia A's. Williams was batting. His average for the season was 39955, which could have been officially rounded up to 400. And the Red Sox manager, Joe Cronin, he offered Ted Williams the chance to sit out the final day in the the doubleheader in the final two games and basically officially log a 400 batting average. But Ted Williams declined to do so. He said, quote, if I'm going to be a 400 hitter, I want more than my toenails on the line. That's who Ted Williams was. Now, on that doubleheader that day, he went six for eight, finished the season at 406. Again, Ted Williams in a nutshell. And by the way, he won the Triple Crown that year, along with batting over 400, and he did not win the American League MVP. That went to Joe DiMaggio. 
Talk about a special time for baseball. Now, Williams served in World War II and was subjected to some controversy, actually, with his draft status that cost him a sponsorship with Quaker Oats. And he eventually became a Marine aviator. Again, his awesome eyesight and that competitive nature that he had were just perfect fits for becoming a, uh, a fighter pilot. And the war ended before he would see combat in the Pacific, but then he got called up again during the Korean War. And he wasn't happy about it, but he went and he served. And believe it or not, Ted Williams, the baseball superstar in the Korean War, was the wingman for none other than John Glenn, as in the astronaut and senator. And Ted Williams saw combat in Korea, was nearly shot down on one occasion, and he is the only Hall of Famer to have served in two wars. And he is also, believe it or not, in the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. Yes, there is such a thing, because Ted Williams was an avid outdoors person. Now, Williams, when you add it all up, he lost five years of baseball to the Marines between World War II and Korea. And if he had played those five years in his prime, I believe he would have set the all-time record for RBIs. And maybe he would have at least, at a minimum, challenged Babe Ruth, maybe broken Babe Ruth's all-time home run record at the time of, what, 7-14 before Hank Aaron came around. Now, we'll never know for sure, of course, but we do know some things for sure about Ted Williams the greatest hitter that ever played the game, a true individual in every sense of the word, and one of the greatest Americans. Ted Williams was a noted celebrity who did not mince words. He had courage of his convictions, whether you agreed with him or disagreed with him. And he could be rough to deal with, but you knew where you stood, and you knew where he stood, and he'd hold his ground with respect to his values. Now, that is not exactly a formula for celebrity these days is proven by our first connection, which is to a different celebrity than in the world of sports. This one is in the world of banking and how today national and geopolitics impact what people in prominent positions often say, or in this case, often backtrack from what they said. Jamie Dimon is the head, of course, of J.P. Morgan, probably one of the five most influential business leaders in America today. And like Ted Williams, uh, Dimon's got a reputation of saying what he thinks until it comes to China, at least. Because earlier this year, Diamond repeated a joke that he made in Hong Kong where he quipped, the Communist Party is celebrating its 100th year. So is J.P. Morgan. I'd make you a bet we last longer. So that was the joke that he made. Whoops. The next day after he said that, the second time, uh, Diamond had to follow it up with the following quote, I regret and should not have made that comment, end quote. That's right. Chinese leadership heard that joke, and China has lots of current and potential J.P. Morgan clients, so it doesn't take a genius to figure out what transpired from there. And the bank also made an official statement saying, Diamond acknowledges that he should never speak lightly or disrespectfully about another country or its leadership. Yeah, right, especially China. The Chinese government, by the way, accepted the apology, or I suppose technically the double apology. Now, here is what is really weird about the Jamie Dimons and J.P. Morgans all across corporate America these days. They'll go out of their way and not even think twice about lecturing and criticizing America. Don't even hesitate to do so. And they'll do so in some instances, depending on the individual or the company, they'll do it gratuitously and as a herd. But they are hypersensitive to saying anything bad or even anything funny or snarky about China, as in communist China, as in human rights abuser China and going from unofficial to official foe at light speed. Nuts. 
And that makes a nice connection to what our climate czar once said versus what he does today. John Kerry, if you recall, he ran for president as the Democratic nominee back in 2004. Seems like yesterday, but boy, time flies. And when he was campaigning back in 2004, he was busy calling American CEOs all kinds of names. He called CEOs who outsourced American jobs to places like China, Benedict Arnold CEOs, as in traders. And a lot of CEOs and business leaders criticized him at the time, by the way, because that's when the expert and elite classes were telling us that China, they would moderate and democratize and respect individual rights. Yada, yada, yada. But contrast the candidate Kerry in 2004 to climate czar Kerry today. Czar Kerry today is doing everything in his power, which, by the way, he should have none of since no one elected him and his position is solely based on administrative state power grabbing. But he's doing everything he can in his power to make sure that American jobs are destroyed, obliterated, out of existence by regulatory fiat in domestic energy and manufacturing. And then those jobs, they're being replaced by what? By Chinese-controlled supply chain with respect to mining, processing, making, and shipping, things like wind turbines and solar panels, and EVs and batteries. And he's doing this on a national scale today. He's doing effectively what he accused his label of Benedict Arnold CEOs of doing on a plant-by-plant scale back in 2004. Back then, The Benedict Arnold CEOs did it in the hollow interests of liberalizing China. Ha! Today, the climate czar does it in the hollow interest of tackling climate change, which I suppose deserves a double ha. Now, speaking of the climate czar and his Benedict Arnold policies of late, let's make a connection, a la James Burke's BBC Connection series, to what's going on with our current administration in D.C. and a foreign billionaire who is under U.S. sanctions for alleged shady business dealings in the natural resource space. Now, what I'm about to tell you, you might find it hard to believe, but I assure you that it is occurring. So a little stage setting first. There's a billionaire who last I saw is living in Israel by the name of Dan Gertler. And he is a big deal in the global mining and energy industries. He's made a fortune in them. And apparently some authorities think he made it the wrong way, basically through alleged corruption and the like. Now, one of those authorities who questions Gertler is the United States. And in 2017, our Treasury Department placed sanctions on him, accusing him of making his money through corruption tied to mining and oil deals in Africa, specifically the Congo, which is where so much corruption and human rights abuse currently occurs with the mining of things like cobalt, which is needed, as we discussed before, for the climate czar's energy and economic plans that outsource our industries like energy and power generation and car manufacturing, to places like Africa through control of the supply chain by China. And the Benedict Arnold, or I'm sorry, climate czar, needs more stuff mined in Africa and controlled by China for him to be able to continue forcing us down an energy transition. So now it looks like the United States is considering, or might be in the process of, lifting those sanctions on Mr. Gertler, so that he can, get this, invest billions of dollars alongside the Saudis as partners to go dig more stuff up in Africa, potentially that will use child labor and destroy ecosystems in the process. So China can send us more windmills and solar panels and electric vehicles, and so that we can create energy scarcity and lose domestic industries and the jobs that go with them. 
so that we can say that we're tackling climate change. But in reality, we all know it's either having no impact or might actually be worsening the climate. That's our unelected, unaccountable Benedict Arnold climate czar at work. Ruin what works well domestically, remove sanctions on foreign players suspected of corruption, facilitate him working with the Saudis to invest billions into mining operations in Africa that spread damage, allow China to reap much of the resulting supply chain rewards, and then have U.S. taxpayers, those who haven't at least lost their jobs from all this yet, subsidize it. Yes, indeed, as Patsy Cline would sing, crazy. Now, while the West and its elites, like the climate czar, are working their strange magic, to borrow another song titled that one from ELO, what is Africa doing to better itself? Well, what a rational person would do, which is develop its own domestic sources of reliable and low-cost energy and the infrastructure that goes along with it. Basically, much of Africa is doing the exact opposite of what the West is doing and lecturing, which is great for Africans, but which means it's driving the Western elites, there's that word again, crazy. Let's take the case of Uganda. Uganda is drilling for oil and building pipelines that tie into a network that's going to span 900 miles. And it's doing so next to, and in some instances, within a national park. Because in Uganda, when it comes to energy policy and development, Ugandans come first. It's a $10 billion project, which is going to inject life into the economy. Now, environmentalists and the Western elites, they hate this situation in Uganda and across Africa, which is strange because if you said this was all about, say, a cobalt mine for batteries, those very same elites and environmentalists, they would applaud it. So inconsistency and hypocrisy, you see that from these corners and again and again. And Uganda, as well as Tanzania, where some of the development for oil is occurring, Thankfully, they are not listening to the environmentalists or to the Western elites and their lectures. Um, They are saying they're going to do what makes sense and what is best for their economy and citizens, which means to a certain extent, you're going to see drill baby drill. Now, here's a quote that I found to be interesting from Uganda's president. Nothing will stop this project. We shall not accept any pressure from anybody. We know what we are doing. So I know there's a lot of issues with the president of Uganda, who's viewed as a bit of an autocrat, but when it comes to energy policy and how he prioritizes and thinks through what gets done uh, within his nation seems to make a lot of sense. And by the way, who is lecturing and criticizing these African nations and leaders who are acting in their self-interest? Well, let me give you some of the names of the critics. The Climate Accountability Institute in the United States the Friends of the Earth in France, the European Parliament. My goodness, if that is who is against these projects, you might have to be for them just on principle alone. And I can't forget the cesspool of ineptitude and misery that is the United Nations. It's also criticizing in this arena, specifically Namibia, for developing its domestic oil resources. And oh wait, the U.S., with the current administration in D.C. is taking aim at Congo for developing its oil resources. And that's the same administration here in D.C. that has the climate czar, who I just told you about, is considering lifting sanctions on a foreign billionaire suspected of corruption so that he can partner with the Saudis to mine cobalt in the very same Congo. Wow. Oh, and while Western elites criticize 
Guess who is working with the African nations on these oil and pipeline projects? China, of course, and French energy conglomerate Total. The plan is to get the crude, or at least some of it, to the coast of Africa, and then have the opportunity to ship it globally to various markets, like Europe, where much of the criticism is coming from. How shall we say ironic? So while the elites are stopping the poor in developing world in Africa from improving their economies and their citizens' quality of life, let's make a connection to what these same Western elites and experts are doing when it comes to modeling the economic impacts of changing weather. Now, this gets even more interesting and shocking, which is saying something considering what we just discussed. If you take a look at the top academic publications in the field of economics, and you rank them by the number of citations, there is a specific paper that falls in the top 1% of most cited. And that's impressive. It was published in 2012, and the co-authors, they hail from MIT, Harvard, and Northwestern. That's also impressive. And the authors have been showered with all kinds of awards for the paper, which is, of course, incredibly impressive. And the study claims to show that as places warm from climate change, their GDPs drop. In other words, this paper serves as the basis of the popular view that increasing temperatures, it means decreasing GDP. The global warming, or if you want to call it climate change, that it hurts economies. And then, of course, the logical next conclusion is that we have to regulate things to control the weather so we don't lose economic opportunity. It serves basically as cover for administrative and regulatory state growth. You see the logic, right? Simple but effective. Now, an enterprising economist did something recently regarding this groundbreaking paper that was fascinating. He actually took the time to assess the underlying assumptions and methodologies used to come up with the paper's often quoted conclusions that warming causes economic distress in economies all over the world. And what he found was that the study is a joke and its conclusions fall apart when you look at the details. So let me give you a few examples as to why. The period studied in the paper was from 1961 to 2003, and that's interesting in and of itself, as we shall see shortly. Nations are tagged in the study as either being rich or poor. So if the nation is in the upper half of GDP per capita in 1960, it was deemed in the paper as rich, and if it was in the lower half in 1960, it was deemed as poor. Simple, and but to the point perhaps of silly, and that where a nation was in 1960 doesn't mean it stayed there on that metric of GDP per capita through 2003. And this matters greatly for the paper's conclusions, as we will see. Okay, now here's where things start to fall apart with the paper's methodology. Take South Korea as an example. The paper labeled South Korea as poor because it was indeed poor in 1960, but it's clearly a rich nation today. Now, what happens if you split South Korea's label to poor from, say, 1960 to 1971 and then switch it over to rich from 1971 to 2003 to reflect what actually happened? The studies reports they are severely diminished and they can't be demonstrated anywhere near to the extent that they were warranted. Well, what if we did similar labeling of each nation every year, basically making a more refined data set for rich and poor nations as the actual data evolve each year in the study. Doing so results in all the paper's conclusions disappearing. No correlation between warming and lost economic power. 
And then there's the obvious ignoring or even gaming of specific nations in the study. Take the case of Rwanda. It went through a brutal genocide, if you recall, in the early 1990s. And in 1994, its GDP from the genocide and war fell over 60%. Now, it was also warm in Rwanda that year, so the study assigned the GDP drop to be caused by the warm weather, which, of course, is ludicrous, but published and celebrated as groundbreaking. I told you the paper stopped with its data set in 2003. Well, what happens if we extend data through 2017 and added additional nations? And again, classifying each as rich or poor every year instead of one time based off of 1960. Same thing. Study's findings are fatally eroded and they vaporize. And the study used annual temperatures, even though monthly temperatures with respect to data are readily available. And when you use monthly temperature data, it's not clear the GDP shrinks in the summer months in a nation, which is a problem for the overall conclusions of the paper when you think about it. I got to give kudos to economist David Barker, who ran the sound analysis and exposed the fallacy of this highly cited, excessively awarded, and elite academia-authored piece of propaganda, a great exemplar of the charade of climate science that's used to justify so many flawed policies these days. That example of shoddy research that we just reviewed, and then seeing it cited as the definitive authority to justify major policy matters, it highlights our next connection, which is how the science community has lost a lot of the public's trust. There's a science writer out there, Matt Ridley, who makes a great distinction between science as a philosophy and science as an institution. Very different concepts. So science as a philosophy is how science should be, which is embracing dissent, challenging the consensus, diving into the scientific method, and embracing rational and objective analysis, and then following what those tell us when it comes to conclusions. Not political, but instead apolitical. Now, science as an institution, that's what gives us the science of today. It's political, it's ideological, and it's driven by ideology, not by data. It can be erratic, it can be inconsistent, and it's what creates the danger of scientific consensus as being a good thing to be followed and adhered to. Scientists become cheerleaders and defenders of the ideology instead of groundbreakers and consensus busters. And curious to a fault, groupthink and herd mentality to the point where they act as gatekeepers of the favored views. And we see science as an institution when we came upon the crisis of COVID. We saw that with shutdown policies and mask mandates and all of these issues swirling around censorship about vaccine impacts. We talked an episode or two ago about the World Health Organization and how its scientific team ignored lab leak evidence and data with COVID in China. That was shameful and it should carry consequences, but it won't. And we just saw the same shenanigans on our prior connection with climate change which is embarrassing, and we see it with healthcare and all kinds of other industries and big policy impacts. In science as an institution, it's tempting for scientists because it gets funded by government who gets to set the ideology the institution of science will adhere to, and it gets attention and praise beyond government with media and across all of academia, both of who adhere to these same ideologies. Ridley had an awesome quote that I wanted to share with you. 
Science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. Well said in a great summation of why science is crucial to society and why it needs to avoid being institutionalized. Let me give you an example of the difference between science as a philosophy and science as an institution with our next connection, which is how scientists are dealing with the potential problem of climate change or rising atmospheric CO2 levels. Now, before you jump all over me for saying potential problem, let's be clear, climate change has been an absolute scientific certainty for millions of years. What's not clear is to what extent human activities impact climate and whether any such impacts are harmful or helpful to the human condition and to what extent. Anyway, there's an interesting development occurring on the leading edge of potential fixes to global warming. A leading scientist and inventor of our time is Nathan Mirvold. Never heard of him, right? Yeah, that's a shame. That's because society tends to celebrate someone who can throw a fastball more than someone who can change millions of lives for the better through innovation. Anyway, Mr. Mirvold sees a troubling trend in the scientific policy arena with climate change these days. All the focus is on reducing emissions, no matter what the societal cost and what the economic damage that will be done might be. You know, it's code red, the end is near, climate emergency, all that jazz. But when it comes to pursuing what is known as geoengineering solutions to control climate, where humans intervene to throttle climate change, the scientific community, again, as an institution, it isn't interested and it doesn't want to hear about these potential solutions. Such solutions, by the way, they include things like reflecting sunlight back into space and direct air carbon capture to remove CO2 from the air around us. Now, it's far from certain that they're going to work and that they would be economic to do so, but they are certainly worth a look. So why is so much of the scientific community not interested in geoengineering as a solution to climate change? Because, as Mr. Mirvold puts it, there's no evidence I can see that many of the people involved in the climate debate want a solution. And you know what? He is absolutely correct with that assessment. It's back to science as an institution and defender of the consensus and ideology that demands ratcheting down on individual choice through Dacronian emissions cuts. And if proper attention is paid to opportunities such as geoengineering, it's going to take away the policy clubs of emission reductions and individual sacrifice. It's very convenient to have the end of the world looming without severe sacrifice to justify policies that mandate such sacrifice. Science as an institution, it feels and looks like a religion. That's because it is a religion, where the abstract, pagan-like worship of Mother Earth is the God that the worshiper must sacrifice for. The original sins are energy use and high quality of life, which require repenting through the sacrifice of giving back choice and seeding quality of life. Think about it. So-called scientists and experts, they tell us the world is ending without immediate and massive change. You are to blame for the life that you enjoy. So you sacrifice, you pay more, you use less, you seed choice. And when a storm hits, it's Mother Earth's way of telling you that you need to change. Repent Center, the United Nations, World Health Organization, Climate Czar, and the Code Red crowd, they're more slick TV preachers of old looking to extract your cash than they are science. 
Yeah, this episode, it has me fired up. We basically wove our way on a journey of connections, tying together everything that's twisted and wrong when it comes to science as an institution, our policies on climate and energy, our government and business leaders' actions versus their words, and how the developed and developing world are both paying a heavy price because of all of it. Now, much of this dysfunction is found at the root of elite academia. That's nothing new to the Far Middle podcast. And it doesn't get much more elite than Duke. Now, I had something I was saving for a while to share with you, but I was looking for the right slot. And I think I found that right slot with it serving as a good wrap for episode 130. Last spring, back in 2022, that was the swan song for Coach K at Duke basketball. And his last home game as coach was approaching. And that precipitated those silly stories that you see all the time about Duke students camping out for days on end outside of Cameron Arena for seats. Been seeing those stories for decades, it seems. Well, they reached their height in the spring of 2022 with Coach K's pending retirement and final home game. Now, I saw such a story in a national newspaper, and it highlights a lot of what is wrong with academia these days and with media. So first, the story stated that students who camp in at this field at Duke, they are taking advantage of a remarkable deal. That's the phrase that the uh, the news story utilized. And I guess that remarkable deal was getting the best seats in the house for free. That, of course, is nonsense. If those students think they're getting those tickets for free, have them check their student loan balances. They pay dearly for those tickets, whether they attended the game or not, which means with student loan forgiveness, by the way, we all might end up paying for those seats dearly. And tickets for that game that closed Coach K's career, they were going for $17,000 a pop on the resale market. Now, something is very wrong with academia when elite nonprofits getting gobs of taxpayer money see basketball tickets for their games selling for $17,000. And the students came up with a process for granting these tent sites in the tent city outside the arena. The applicants had to pass a test on Duke basketball. So let's see. College students these days, they don't know basic civics. They don't need to take the SAT or ACT to get admitted, and they don't want to see class rankings. But when it comes to getting a spot for a tent to wait days on end for a basketball game, they prep like crazy for an exam on basketball and its players at Duke. Again, something is very wrong with elite academia these days. And that's why only 36% of Americans express a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in higher education. And that's why tuition has gone up almost 170% between 1980 and 2020. Do you think our rivals in China are focusing on the same things that our supposed best and brightest at Duke are focused on? What are those Chinese students spending their time on? They prepping for basketball exams to get a tent space to sleep in for days for a ticket to a game? Or are they studying math, science, etc., to better engineer that next weapon system or for hitting the lab to develop the groundwork for the next breakthrough in AI, IT, or genetics? Their best are in labs and classrooms buried in deep thought, and our best are lounging in tents outside arenas where billions of dollars of taxpayers' money gets poured into and family life savings are committed to so the student can attend. We shouldn't be treating these institutions as the authorities on all things policy and science related. We should be demanding their reform before it's too late. 
Hey, keep the fire burning, constant listeners, until we hit it again in a week. Wish you well in the coming week.